What's going on, everybody? We hope everyone is continuing to stay safe and well wherever you may be. I would like to welcome everybody back to our channel, however you're listening, Spotify, Apple, Anchor, Google, etc. And I want to thank you for continuing to tune in to Sigro Sessions. On this episode of Sigro Sessions, Sigma Beta Rho Fraternity's official podcast, we are continuing to dive deeper into professional development. And today we are talking about medical school, what it means to be a pre-medical student today in undergrad, and we are going to be reviewing the medical school admissions process briefly. Today, I am joined with Austin Kim, an alumnus of Sigma Beta Rho, who joined the organization in fall 2014 at Emory University Sig Rho's Alpha Lambda chapter. Austin has previously spoken regarding medical school and its process at various presentations and talks around the Georgia area and Austin, with that, I will hand it over to you to provide any additional background information on yourself that you uh, may see fit and to go ahead and jump right into it. All right. Thank you. Um, hello, everyone. This is Austin. Uh, I'm a second year student at Tulane University School of Medicine. Um, I'm currently in the, this limbo of studying for step one which I should have taken back in April, but since the whole COVID-19 crisis has been going on, my step date has been continuously pushed back. So I've, I've got some free time alongside all this studying to do. And I thought I'd just kind of come on the podcast and give my thoughts, interpretations, advice, and feelings about this very rough um, and arduous process. Um, the way I kind of want to frame this talk is just what I wish that I would have heard maybe as a freshman going into college or a sophomore um, trying to figure out how to buckle down and get ready for the whole medical school application process. Um, you know, not a lot of people are going to have that like one upperclassman that's going to spill their guts to them or maybe someone in their family, like an older sibling that they know that it's gone through the process and exactly what to expect from it. So yeah, you know, we're here, we're here talking. And I just hope that I can provide that insight that, you know, not a uh, university pre-health committee or like a pre-med advisor is going to give you in terms of generic advice. Um, so, yeah, like I said, I'm a second year at Tulane University School of Medicine. Uh, I graduated Emory in spring of 2017, um, you know, and I applied to, I think, 25 or 26 medical schools during that cycle. And I got one interview one wait list and zero acceptances. So coming in to fall of 2017 was pretty rough. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I really wanted to go to medical school. This was like a dream I had and I needed to figure out something quick. So I ended up doing a post-bac program at Tulane, the anatomy certification leadership program, um, which I will talk about later along with other post-bac special master's program or alternative to getting into medical school. And um, yeah, I basically killed it in that program uh, and eventually matriculated in fall 2018 as part of the class of 2022 at Tucson. So that's sort of my journey. Um, I basically want to touch points on everything about this whole process from undergrad, navigating the pre-med lifestyle, uh, applying in your senior year, um, what to expect during that cycle, how it all went wrong, how it all went wrong for me in the spring of 2017 when I really had no acceptances and nowhere to go and I was graduating in like a month and um, how to maybe approach a reapplication process in your gap year and getting into medical school and feeling good about yourself. Um, and yeah, anytime Vignesh has questions, you can just jump in, but um, like he said, I've kind of given this presentation before, so I'm mostly going to be talking about it from my own point of view, but yeah. All right. So um, I just want to start this off with a disclaimer. Uh, the way I'm going to conduct this presentation or podcast is talking like how you already know that you want to pursue medicine, um, whoever's listening to this. Um, I want to say that deciding to pursue medical school is a very overexplained industry. Um, either you know that you want to go to medical school or you don't, or you're going to find a YouTube video on it on why going to medical school is great and why being a doctor is awesome. I'm not here to make that decision for you. Um, Shadow, maybe friends or family, talk to your doctor, your general practitioner, 
or watch watch a vlogger like uh, med school insiders or the radiology guy who <laughs> lives off of his starbucks or another what's his name dr mike the the genius galaxy brain dude who lives in new york and commutes to new jersey with like a zero commute time with no traffic um anyway uh i can't make that sort of decision for you so obviously the sooner you figure out that you want to pursue medicine the better but i'm not here for that um so <laughs> knowing that you want to go to medical school uh knowing that you're going to go through college as sort of a pre-med you know having this label on you it, it kind of sucks, you know, um, everybody's going to think you're a gunner. Everyone thinks you're only you're not in college to have fun. But that's that's kind of what it is. Um, dealing with the pre-med mentality and knowing that, yes, medical schools can be shallow institutions that only want to see you get A's and have higher than a 3.8 and take all these rigorous classes while your other friends are having fun and maybe like their language classes or their arts classes or, you know, doing something like business, which is actual applications. And, you know, you're sort of here sitting, memorizing biochem enzymes, Michaelis Menten, dying over orgo. At the end of the day, you're not living the same college experience that everyone else is. And, you know, you're going to have to be okay with that. So any, any freshmen or sophomores right now, you know, taking the sort of intro classes, we've all been there and it, it sucks. Um, there's really nothing I can say about it because you are living in a bubble, you know, um, if you have friends outside of that pre-med bubble, it's going to be painfully obvious how much more fun and how much more time that they have to do things. But, you know, I would say that in college, it is a chance to broaden your horizons in the United States school system. You know, most of us are going through four-year universities, going to four years of medical school, and everywhere else, you know, most of these are done six year, seven year programs. So take the extra time that we have. You don't have to rush through things. Um, you don't need to finish everything by your sophomore year or junior year. Take your time, you know, pick up another major if you can. I was a theater studies and chemistry double major, which sucked in terms of like time management. But, you know, I got to pursue something that I really loved throughout high school, i.e. theater and um, get a major in it learn a bunch of things besides history and acting. I mean, I learned how to weld in our um, workshop class, um, build sets and stuff. So maybe if you don't get a major, think about a minor, but just try to broaden hor your horizons. Don't get yourself stuck in this box of science classes. Take an extra year of a language, uh, learn, pick up some more arts classes, do things that'll keep you sane because it is a rough time. So Let's let's talk about um, your undergrad life and kind of navigating pre-med and thinking about what sort of requirements that you need in order to apply for medical school. Um, I also want to preface this with saying that applying to medical school is a system that favors the wealthy and people that can't afford the, these opportunities. Um, throughout a lot of this, I'll be posing, uh, positing a lot of external resources that people can try and use and at the end of the day, some people just will not be able to afford those opportunities. And if you look at the student doctor network thread for the post-bac program that I was in, because it's not a traditional degree granting program, it doesn't actually qualify for any federal loans. So people have to pay $15,000 out of pocket. And a lot of like potential applicants have really brought the hammer down on Tulane for that because this program doesn't qualify for federal loans that they actually have no way of applying to this program or even attending this program, no matter how much they want to go to medical school, there's a giant financial barrier. Um, a lot of things are going to be like this, um, especially for the MCAT, your standardized test, test books are going to cost a lot. Um, your college may offer free pre-med consulting. Um, I, if you can't afford it, I would really advise maybe getting a private consultant, um, someone who will actually look over your essays with time and care other than just uh, someone hired to look over 200, 300 pre-meds in your class. Um, again, if you can find any financial support, either from family or just, I don't know, a part-time job, literally anything else, um, every dollar counts, but it is a weighted system and that is kind of unfortunate. So um, yeah, talking about undergrad and navigating the pre-med lifestyle. The first thing I wanna say is if you are coming into college and you know that you wanna go into medicine, Consider not majoring in STEM if you can. Um, 
you will expose yourself to science courses regardless. Medical school requires, in most schools, prerequisites. They will require one year of biology with lab, one year of chemistry, general chemistry with lab, one year of general physics with lab, uh, one semester of biochemistry, and one, semester, uh, one year of organic chemistry with lab. And some schools might not even require lab on top of that. Um, some other not necessarily required, but good in order to study for the MCAT are psychology and sociology classes. Actually, I think biochemistry classes are on there too in the not required, but you should have it at least in order to take the MCAT. So, you know, those were only six or seven classes. And realistically, if you pursue a STEM major like I did, I did all the pre-med requirements in my chemistry major in the first year and a half. And my second two and a half years in college were spent doing things that I will literally never look at again. Um, physical chemistry, organometallic chemistry, triple integrals of gaseous the whatevers, and learning all these things about quantum mechanics, like completely useless for what I'm doing now. Like, yeah, maybe it's interesting, but I also got like C pluses in all of those classes and B minuses, which, you know, if you maybe you want to do a chemistry PhD, those sorts of grades are fine. But if you're trying to go to medical school and again, shallow institutions that really want to see you get like a 4.0 or 3.85 or whatever the cutoff is, not so great. Um, so if you take those six or seven courses that are required for medical school and encouraged for the MCAT, Maybe you don't need to go ahead and stick yourself into the biology, chemistry, biochemistry, whatever hole. Um, like I said, I majored in theater as a double major. Um, but, you know, if I could go back and do it again, I would have just done theater as my, you know, hobby, passion, something that I enjoyed and taken those STEM classes on the side. Um, at least I would have had the requisite body of knowledge in order to take the standardized tests for medical school and get into medical school but I would have had a lot more free time to kind of devote to the things I loved. Uh, I didn't do many productions throughout college because I was doing other things like research. And most of my stage involvement was going to be working backstage as part of like my classes. So that's one of the regrets because I am primarily an actor um, throughout high school and not being able to do that sort of thing in college because I was like on this double major track going towards medical school where a lot of the double major from my chemistry side was being eaten up by these upper level courses that I'd never think about again. Um, kind of one of my bigger regrets. So, yeah. Um, talking about those requirements again, um, if you can afford to, again, that's going to preface every single sentence that I say, but if you can afford to, consider taking some of these prereqs over the summer. Um, some popular options that me and my peers have done have been taking organic chemistry over the summer or maybe physics and physics lab over the summer. Obviously it's not ideal in order to spend more time learning and spending your summers learning, but take being able to take a class over the summer when it's isolated and by itself can really give you a leg up. Now I say taking it over the summer by taking it over the summer at your home institution. Um, do not try to take these courses at a local community college or um, anywhere else. The credits, yes, will transfer, but medical schools generally look down on that and sometimes they won't even count. So, yeah, for me, one summer I stayed over, uh, I took organometallic, which was useless for <laughs> the grand scheme of things, but I, I stayed over a summer and took uh, the intro bio class and lab, it got A's and everything. And honestly, like I just had so much time in order to do that. Yes, you have your class every day instead of uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, like you might have during the year. But having that class be the only class that you can take definitely um, opens up your time to study and your time to absorb. And it, I don't know, just made more sense to me to do it like that. Um, a lot of my friends also took organic over the summer. And I would say like, the majority of them did better than some of my other friends that took it over year with four other classes and a full load to take. So uh, consider that if you can. Uh, talking about extracurriculars, obviously Sigro is a really big one, um, but anything that you do cannot go wrong if you can spin it right. Um, being a founder of Sigro was a huge part of my application. Um, 
leadership experience, volunteering experience, um, organizational experience. But, you know, I also put my part-time job in there. I worked at a bubble tea cafe for a year. Um, and, you know, you spend that as taking orders, being independent and managing your money. And I talked about that during my interviews at uh, Rutgers and Tulane. Um, so if you, if you do anything, literally anything outside of school, and you know how to spin it correctly, talking about the skills that you've learned from even something as simple as a part-time job, people will appreciate that. And of course, put it on your resume, but being able to talk about it and integrate it into your life and the body of knowledge that you've acquired from going through college and showing medical schools that you're ready to handle the world. You know, even something as simple as being a cashier is uh, something that they appreciate. Um, so just to uh, jump in really quickly, I know earlier um, in the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned how, you know, being an undergrad is no easy feat that you have your prereqs, you have your extra studying, you have all these classes. Um, on top of that, you recently mentioned that, you know, extracurriculars are important. And if people have the opportunity to pursue extracurriculars, whether that be through their university or through other employment or other organizations, um, to note that on their application. So seeing that you've had those experiences while you were an undergrad, was that difficult for you to, I guess, kind of like the work-life balance I'm referring to, or, you know, is that something that you just had to, you know, learn to adjust to and overall you saw it as a net positive or a net benefit to your future medical school application? Yeah, so uh, I think the biggest thing in the whole pre-med mentality that you have to be okay with is the concept of delayed gratification. You know, you really are investing into yourself for four years in order to come out at the end of this 12, 15 years later, a better person. So as unfortunate as it sounds, it is something that you kind of have to suck up and watch everyone have fun uh, around you. But, you know, you can take the time and invest yourself in meaningful opportunities. You know, I was still in a fraternity and with all the benefits of that and all the time that I put in, um, three of my LBs were also in a fraternity and got into medical school too. So it's not something that's completely outlandish. Maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit because of how tough I had it. But, you know, if, if you can quote unquote suck up, um, it is something that does pay off in the end. And it's not like you're investing for empty benefits in undergrad. Obviously being in a fraternity is a great thing um, to be in your undergrad life, but taking all these classes or even branching out and meeting other people that you wouldn't necessarily meet in your pre-med bubble, um, definitely the time that you take is something that pays off. Okay, yeah. All right, so um, undergrad, we've talked about uh, alternative majors, the requirements that you can take over the summer, uh, extracurriculars. Um, research, research can be very polarizing in the pre-med uh, bubble. <laughs> So what I would say is stand out if you can, but otherwise research is probably one of the only things that you can just do to tick off the completions box. For me, I really invested into research because uh, I had some research experiences in high school and early in undergrad that I enjoyed and I went ham on research. I did a senior thesis and published in a microbiology journal um, in dermatology as a co-author. So I, I probably invested maybe 400 hours into my project and I had a really good relationship with my PI that helped me get there. Um, this is, should not be the standard. Um, I think if you can just demonstrate a commitment to research that you stuck through a project, yes, if you can get on a paper, not even saying like first author, second author, if you can get on a paper, I would say that'd be good enough. Really, it's just demonstrating your commitment to scientific inquiry and if you can put the skills that you've learned in life into a scientific setting, um, I really think is all that research really boils down to. Yes, if you, if you get on a paper, that's great. But I don't think that should be the standard that medical students hold themselves up to. Um, if you can demonstrate that you've worked with graduate students, postdocs, done these and have these skills relevant from what you've done. Obviously, MD-PhD is a completely different story. If you're interested in doing the MD-PhD route in which you do uh, two years of medical school, followed by your entire PhD track, followed by your clinical years of medical school in order to graduate as a physician scientist, 
Um, yeah, you want to put a lot more emphasis onto research, but I'm not on that track, so I'm probably not the best to talk about that. Awesome. To go off of research, um, obviously going off your point, it's very valuable experience, but let me kind of, I guess, paint a picture or a question for you and maybe um, seeing your past experiences, you're able to respond. So say I am a new undergrad student, let's say first year, second year, um, I'm just kind of taking my intro classes, intro bio, intro chem. Maybe if I'm a second year, I'm taking a little bit more advanced classes and I'm trying to get in um, in a lab um, in contact with the PI or, you know, I'm very interested in research and just, you know, can't find the opportunities that easily or because there are higher level underclassmen that, you know, do they necessarily have priority over me or why? Am I, as a first or second year student, maybe not getting as many responses as I would like on seeking research opportunities? Um, so that really is just luck of the draw, honestly. Uh, a lot of underclassmen trying to get into research opportunities just comes down to cold emailing as many professors as you can and asking um, what they have open. Uh, you're really swallowing your pride to just kind of be like, hey, I'm a first year with literally no experience whatsoever, but I'm interested in this. And as soon as you say that you're pre-med, a lot of people will shut you down because they're like, oh, he's only here for like a year or two and he's not going to pursue this at all. Um, you keep your options open. I mean, for me, I rotated through an inorganic chemistry lab, a bio lab and a biochem lab. Bio, bioorganic? I don't know. I, I rotated through a lot of labs like my first year, just sitting in meetings, um, talking to grad students that I would never see again for four years. Mm -hmm. And um, what happened to me was my summer second year when I was doing those classes, I ended up stumbling across the Emory University herbarium as a volunteer. And this entire thing was just like a library for plant specimens collected around like the Georgia area, like different grasses, different flowers. And it was literally just scrapbooking. <laughs> you know, we were just gluing flowers down onto a piece of paper, putting a little placard there and taking a picture in a light box. But that university herbarium was actually tied to the Center for Human Health run by Dr. Cassandra Quave, who is also part of the Department of Dermatology at Emory University School of Medicine. And my involvement with the herbarium and my, I guess, commitment to that, um, Dr. Quave recognized it along with my chemistry background. And she offered me a spot on a project, which was in drug discovery of finding novel compounds to be used to inhibit MRSA and other bacterial infections using traditional medicine compounds found in plants in the Balkans. <laughs> so it's like a very long convoluted road for me to get from scrapbooking plants or cold emailing professors rotating through three labs, taking a summer to scrapbook plants and then getting put on a chemistry based project where I'm doing drug discovery and running all of these um, SEP funnels uh, liquid chromatographies, mass spec, doing all this chemistry heavy stuff from like a, a volunteer experience that I never thought would even be applicable towards it. Um, it was very serendipitous, but you know, some of those things might just happen to you. Um, cold, cold emailing gets your foot in the door, but you know, if you can really demonstrate your commitment to something, um, it might pay off. Definitely. Definitely. But again, I mean, research that should not be the the goal or the standard i think yes it is the goal but to expect everyone to get that enveloped into research and to really go full steam ahead into a project like that should really maybe be like 10 percent of the population so if you can just get involved in a project and maybe stick with a lab for two years or so i think that's a pretty good demonstration to the commitment of research mm -hmm. all right uh moving on um, i want to talk about shadowing um, this can also be a box that you can tick because this is not necessarily important for the application's sake. It's just demonstrating that you know what a doctor does and kind of like the daily ins and outs of being a doctor. But this is 100% important for life. Um, if you are going to medical school and you've never seen a doctor work before, um, that's probably one of the craziest things you can do because when you get to, when you get to medical school, you could be working in student clinics or, and when you get to third year, fourth year, you're on clerkships working on the medical team. And if you've never had that experience before and you're thrust into it all of a sudden, you could just be like, why am I here? What am I doing? So 
shadowing again it comes down to cold emailing and it sucks um build a relationship with maybe your doctor your personal doctor if you can over the summer do some things in maybe family medicine for a couple of weeks which is what i did um yeah, if you can shadow at like your school's hospital, Emory University Hospital, everybody wants to shadow there. It's a little harder to get in, but you know, you're not going to make a, a a huge connection with this person. If you do, that's great. If they write a letter of recommendation for you, that's great. But again, one of those things, not very important for the application, do it to tick off a box. But on the other hand, very important for life and the rest of your medical schooling. All right. And now the last thing, You've done all these things. You're coming up on your junior year and the MCAT is waiting for you um, and you're wondering how to approach this. I would say if you can take a class, again, financial barriers do exist, but if you can take one of these uh, Kaplan or Princeton review classes, I found them very helpful. Um, going to the class in person or online, from what my friends have said, uh, I didn't find that very helpful, but the Kaplan package or the Princeton review package, they give you almost like a 500 page workbook and individual textbooks for each of the subjects covered on the MCAT. So like a bio textbook, a biochem textbook, an organic textbook, um, and like a basic medical sciences textbook. And that's basically your entire body of knowledge. I would not try to self-study for the MCAT in any way whatsoever. I would get one of those textbooks and really work through it because that's everything you're ever going to need to know. Um, yes, buy, I think sometimes buying the textbook package and ends, ends up registering you for a class either in person or online, but I didn't find that very helpful. And you have the workbook corresponds to online videos on, I think like the Kaplan website or whatever. Um, so I watched all of those online videos and I worked through the workbook pretty much by myself. Uh, I went to the classes, uh, but again, you're kind of just in a room with 20 other people working through um, like a passage together, like a critical reading passage. And it's really not a good use of three hours in order to do that. Um, yes, critical reading, that that is also part of the MCAT for some reason. <laughs> um, so if you didn't do too well on the SAT on that, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't either. And critical reading was, I think, one of my lowest sections too. But yeah, so anyway, taking the books, doing the online lectures, is probably the best way you can prepare for the MCAT. That's basically what medical school is the first two years anyway. Um, many schools offer online lectures uh, or they record their lectures so students can watch them online. But when, once you get to medical school, a lot of people will start throwing around names like Sketchy, Pathoma, Boards and Beyond. All of these are just online video sources that people use for learning and prepare for their standardized exams. In-house tests in medical school will be written by your exam or by your professors and will probably relate to what you've learned specifically in medical school classes. But like what I'm doing right now for my step one exam, it's just online lectures day after day after day after day. So I guess you can get a taste of medical school by that. All right. So coming coming out of uh, your junior year or whatever, uh, I would recommend taking it um, this. The best recommendation that I can give you is to take the MCAT the summer before your junior year, which is pretty hard. Um, I had a couple friends do this, but a lot of people, if they didn't jam pack their schedule um, with their prereqs in the beginning, might find it hard to take without having taken biochem yet or just coming off of organic. Um, try to take, if you can take those classes over the summer, I would say maybe take the MCAT the fall of your junior year with maybe like the online classes over the summer and then the fall of your junior year reserved for the MCAT. I took an in-person Kaplan course during the fall of my junior year and I took the MCAT in January of my junior year. And then I had some other friends that took the online course on Kaplan throughout the year and then took the MCAT in the spring. But realistically, I think you want to, if you're going to apply to medical school out of college, out of senior year of college, I think you should probably try to finish up MCAT by your spring of your junior year. So you're not, you know, burdened by that throughout the, your application cycle. All right. So finishing up your junior year, uh, what you should be aiming for to be competitive, in my personal opinion, um, is a cumulative GPA of 3.8 and a science GPA that's no more than maybe 0.1 or 0.2 behind. 
Uh, a science GPA is calculated with your biology, chemistry, physics, and math grades. This is your BCPM grades. Um, some schools will have you self-report it. Some schools will calculate it themselves off of your transcript. But having a big disparity between your cumulative GPA and your science GPA can be seen as a red flag by some schools. Um, that's kind of stereotypical for someone that just took the pre-med classes and then did really well in the arts classes, which is what I did. Uh, I had a 4.0 in my theater major and basically a 3.1 in chem. So my application was very um, weighted like that and was not a good look. Um, obviously, if you can do great in your science classes and just take a couple classes on top of that for your general education requirements, then you will be maybe like a 3.9, 3.8 in science and like a 4.0 in cumulative or other classes, reaching a cumulative of maybe like 3.9. Perfect. Um, but... Yeah, I would say cumulative 3.8 and science no more than 0.1 or 0.2 behind. So 3.7 or 3.6. Um, and then an MCAT of, I would say about 5.12 is really the gold standard. Um, I think applying to medical school with a 5.10 is also all right. 5.08, you might want to think about retaking if you can, um, applying to MD schools. Uh, but I think 505 and below, maybe you want to think about actually retaking. Um, I go to an MD school in the U.S. Uh, you do have other options of applying to medical school. You can go DO schools, which is what one of my LDs is doing. Um, and you can also go international. You can go to the Caribbean. Um, personally, I have no experience with these options. But again, uh, DO school... It really does not matter, in my personal opinion, if a doctor is an MD or a DO to me. Yes, the bare, the requirements for getting into DO schools are generally lower than MD schools, but by the time you train in residency, they will become the same anyway. Um, it's really just, I think, a stigma among pre-meds that have too much pride to go the DO route. Um, but I would caution people against going international or going to the Caribbean. Um, historically, their graduation rates have been much lower. Uh, their step pass rates have been much lower. And it's very hard to get into a U.S. residency after going um, to these schools. Uh, a lot of Caribbean schools, I think, end up having their residents go back to the Caribbean anyway to finish residency. Um, again, I'm not an expert in this area. This is just for my personal research and what I looked at. But if you can, I would... 100% advise taking DO schools and acceptances over an MD at international schools or an MD at a Caribbean school. All right, so now having finished up your junior year, we're looking at your senior year and you know thinking about applying to medical school, which again is a very expensive process. I think anybody who applies to college kind of knows what to expect. Sending your primary application to maybe 25 schools is going to be about a $150 each. And for the schools that give you secondaries, that's about $100 per secondary. So it really adds up. Um, and like I said, having someone as a consultant that can read your essays is a great thing too. But really only do that if you or your family can afford to. Um, yeah, I didn't have much faith in my pre-med advisor assigned to me by the school because he was also reading maybe 300 other people's applications and essays. And I didn't really feel his advice was specifically applicable to me. But if that's the only option you have, then I think you really should go ahead and make a relationship with your pre-med advisor or your pre-med committee, whatever your school has. Um, when you're in your senior year and you're thinking about applying, think about if your application is the most competitive at this point in time. You are coming right out of college with, I assume, very little life experience, you know, living on your own and those sorts of things. Um, and you might want to think that going into medical school is maybe the right thing for you because you have literally nothing else to do in your life. But, you know, having, having done that and at Tulane, which has a little higher age on average of admission, uh, I feel very young compared to a lot of my classmates and very like not prepared <laughs> for the world, if I could say that. Um, a lot of my classmates are maybe in like their late 20s, um, maybe early 30s. Some of them have children, they're married. And it's just, 
something to consider, I guess, that if you're ready in life to commit yourself in the next eight, 10 years to medicine outside of like your general life experience, I would say, you know, if you can take a gap year and do the things that you want to do, um, if you can apply to medical school your senior year and get a permission to be defer your enrollment for maybe a year or two to just do something. One of my classmates ended up deferring for, I think, a year or two. He ended up going on The Voice. He was on TV. He was part of their uh, YouTube redemption series or something, you know, just doing, doing things other than medicine, you know, because once you get in, you're really investing yourself for eight or 10 years with no other opportunity to do much um, traveling or working or self-discovery besides that so anyway we're, we're at senior year let's say you want to apply right now um think about your letters of recommendation again you probably want a like one of your major advisors uh one of your research advisors someone in a class that probably didn't have more than 40 people um, yeah, if you had a great relationship with your biology one-on-one professor, that's fine. But, you know, if you were just one person in like a 200-person lecture hall that was filled up every day and they never really made an effort to learn your name, maybe don't go for that person. And, um, yeah, think about if your school has a pre-health committee too. I know not a lot of schools do have them. Um, but besides your pre-med advisor, there are people in the pre-health office that can help you with your application and kind of guide you down this path. Um, sometimes your letters of recommendation will be bundled together by your pre-med uh, advisor and the committee as something called a committee or a composite letter. Um, and other times some schools will not have those and just take your letters of recommendation and send those uh, three letters individually over to a medical school. So think about if you have the resources available to you at your school and um, talk to the appropriate people and make sure to you know, keep up with them and update them as much as you can because they're kind of your lifeline into the process. Um, as an undergrad, you're afforded that luxury. My reapplication cycle, I wasn't able to uh, because I was already out of school at that point. So uh, it was something that I really missed during that second cycle. But um, yeah, so let's say you've submitted your application in uh, July. You've submitted your primary AMCAS application and you're starting to hear back with secondaries. Uh, schools probably send out secondaries in, I would say, August to October. Again, if you applied to college, which is how you got here in the first place, you know exactly what this is like. Don't overcommit to anything in your senior year because you're going to have to be filling out a lot of secondary applications, a lot of 500-word essays on why this school, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's a lot. Realistically, if you can complete all of your secondaries, or even pre-write your secondaries by going online to forums like student.doctor.net and finding out what the topics are beforehand and pre-writing those essays so that you can submit them as soon as they come back to you. That's great too. Um, and being able to finish all of them before your senior year actually starts is probably something that I would, I would do. I, I think I did that. I'm pretty sure I did that. Um, but it is really important to free up as much time because your interview season is coming up. Unlike college, every uh, secondary you get at medical school has a potential to turn into an interview invite, also known as an II. And you have to interview at every school that is going to give you an acceptance. So the tiers are going to be your primary application, and that ends up turning into a secondary application sent by each school individually. Once you fill out that secondary application, the school will send you an interview invite or reject you right there, but they can send you an interview invite. And then following an interview invite, you have three roads. You have a rejection post-interview. You have a wait list post-interview, which is what most of the outcome will be, or an acceptance post-interview, which is your what you want. <laughs> so uh, the interviews can really go anywhere from September to March. Uh, fall to spring of your senior year. So don't try to overcommit to anything there. You're going to probably be traveling a lot, hopefully, if you're a good applicant. For me, I had one over Thanksgiving, and that was it. <laughs> so maybe maybe do commit if you have the extra time to. But uh, yeah, schools are going to expect you to show maybe a month out from the interview invite they give you. So if you get one in October, they would want to see you in November. Um, that's the general timeline for it. I mean, interview season runs throughout your senior year. 
And I would say around April is when you should start thinking about alternatives if you don't have an acceptance by then. So thinking about spring, this is kind of my story. Um, spring 2017, I had one wait list, which was not going anywhere because the school that I got the wait list from has a wait list and a high priority wait list, which is where they actually do their wait list movements. And getting a wait list from that school is essentially synonymous with getting rejected post interview. But whatever. <laughs> For me, um, I knew my application wasn't that strong. I invested a lot into research, but like I said, having taken a lot of upper level chemistry courses that were not applicable to what I'm learning right now, I had a 3.1 science GPA with a 4.0 theater GPA that was getting me at maybe like 3.6 overall at a 5.10 MCAT, which was average. Um, great extracurriculars between research and SIGRO, but you know, it, I, I wasn't anything stellar. Um, so this is where I would recommend people to start sending letters of intent to people, to schools that they're waitlisted at. Um, some schools will see this as the crown jewel of something that they should take an applicant off the waitlist for. Um, some schools don't care, but you know, it's really just saying like, hello, like I'm really committed to this school and I would be really excited to come here and further my medical education. Uh, and basically you just say, if I am accepted off of the waitlist at this school, I will 100% matriculate to it. And it's not a binding agreement, but you know, you can get blacklisted at school if you do that and then decide to go somewhere else, but it can be important. And some schools uh, really value that promise that you give them. So think about a letter of intent if you can. But I did send the letters of intent to the schools that I wanted to, and I still had no acceptances. So this was about, I guess, May, I was graduating in like two weeks and I was just kind of thinking of my alternatives. Um, swallowed my pride, thought about a gap year, thought about uh, other options like chemistry grad, uh, pharmacy school, what I could do in the next two or three years to make my application any stronger. Um, I started using student doctor net and uh, the pre-med subreddit for different ideas of what I could do. And some other, some other alternatives that you can think of during your, I guess, extended gap year of waiting for another medical application cycle is a master's program or a post-baccalaureate program. Um, so what these programs are, are essentially one year trial runs of how you can get into medical school. Um, they will probably have you take the same classes that a normal medical school student at that institution would take and they compare you against that. And if you really show that you can do well in these classes, maybe score in the top 10th percentile and really be on top of your class, then you will get a uh, matriculation uh, the following year. So some schools might not even have you interview at the school again. They will just accept you right out. So um, if you can get to one of those programs and do well in them, I think that's great. I came from Tulane ACLP, uh, which does require a previous waitlist in order to get into. So if you don't have a previous waitlist and you just got maybe 25 rejections in a cycle, you can't apply to this program at all, unfortunately. Um, but my, per my program, personally, <laughs> my program has had a 100% acceptance rate for the past three years. Um, and I think 80%, 87% overall over the past five years. So it is a very strong program uh, of the past three year cohorts that I personally know. I think our acceptance rate is something like 53 out of 53 of getting people over three years into medical school at Tulane. So uh, these sorts of programs work. Again, the caveat with mine was that it didn't qualify for federal loans. So you needed someone of uh, family in order to finance them and two that you need a prior wait list. Um, but other special master's programs that I was looking at are at Georgetown. Uh, I think the Georgetown special master's program, Boston University's MAMS program, Tufts has an MBS program and University of Cincinnati's SMP program. Those are probably the four that I was considering besides Tulane that I would have taken where I would have taken a year to go and do that trial run of medical school for one year 
and prove myself that I could handle the coursework, do well in those programs and get into medical school. So essentially what you're doing in these programs is really just putting everything on the line. Uh, you are there to study your butt off and kill your classes and that's it. Because if you demonstrate that you have a middling GPA and an all right MCAT, go to one of these programs and get maybe a 4.0 in their medical school coursework, you are demonstrating that you can handle this sort of activity and you can really handle medical school and essentially just rewrites your GPA on your application. And the school understands that. I would go this route if you have a middling GPA and a decent MCAT score with all right extracurriculars, because the, at the end of the day, the only thing that this program can really help you rewrite is your GPA. But you know, for me, it paid off for all of my classmates. It paid off for all of my classmates in the two years after me, since I did this program, it has always paid off. Um, Tulane ACLP was a little bit different. For us, all we had to do was beat the first year average on a lot of courses, and we only had 20 people per year in our cohort. I know at Georgetown, it's a huge program where they have almost 100 or 200, and you really have to shine and be like the top 10 or 20 in your class in order to get into Georgetown School of Medicine. Um, I think Boston and Tufts are the same. Cincinnati is a smaller program, and I but you should still aim for the top because, you know, if you do one of these programs, uh, the masters quote unquote masters they give you is like a masters in medical science. You know, it really doesn't mean anything. It's just a degree on paper. And, you know, if you had a middling medical school application decided to do one of these programs and couldn't succeed in one of the programs and, you know, finished it at like the bottom of your class, didn't get an interview invite or didn't get into medical school again, you know, then your application is kind of dead in the water, I'm sorry to say. But you tried, you took the risk, you showed that you couldn't handle the coursework, you couldn't excel or you couldn't succeed. Um, yeah, uh, the, in the group before me, so in the ACLP 2017 year, 2016 to 2017 year, I think one or two people didn't beat the average, which is the requirement for Tulane. And um, yeah, they just couldn't do anything after that. Um, they didn't get into Tulane. I don't really know what they're doing right now, but it, it's a risk that you have to take. But if you can, if you can do well in that risk, it'll really pay off. Um, so regardless, uh, if you don't do one of these programs, another option is a DIY post-bac program where you retake your science classes and you do them at a different institution, maybe than the one that you went to, but it's something to bring your GPA up because stereotypically medical schools only care about your GPA. Um, but you know, if you had maybe your first year of college and you didn't adjust well and you took intro bio and intro physics and you got maybe C's and B's in them, then four years later you applied to medical school, didn't get in and you're, you know, hopefully more mature of a person, you know what you're doing in life and you know what you're doing in school and how to study. Consider retaking those classes at maybe a local institution, um, preferably not a community college, but consider retaking those classes so that they appear on your transcript as shining A's and, you know, take a year off to do those things and reapply to medical school. Uh, GPA is like, a, unfortunately, a really big thing. So if you can get that down pat and help your application in a year or two, then that's, you know, pretty good. And I know other people and some friends that I've graduated with that have taken that route and have gotten into medical school without doing one of those special risky programs, but, you know, just retaking their basic science classes, taking some more uh, biology classes, I think like evolutionary biology to bump up their science GPA and really prove that they've changed from their first year of college where they might've messed up. Um, that's good too. Or, you know, just take some time off if you can afford it uh, of financially, of course. Um, you have a degree, you have a four-year degree from a college or university, and you know you can do other things with your life than medical school before going into medical school. Like I said, I go to Tulane, where a lot of my peers are maybe quote-unquote non-traditional. They didn't come straight out of four years of university. They have different life experience than I do, and part of me kind of envies them for that. Uh, they're a little more emotionally mature than I am. They can handle things better than I can. And, you know, they can come home and they're not living in a one bedroom apartment downtown. You know, they have a home and they have a family. And 
you know, if that's something you want to work towards before you invest into medical school, that's, you know, all the more power to you. So if you apply right out of college and don't get in anywhere, it's not the end of the world. Between SMPs, uh, post DIY postbacks, and just generally taking gap years, you, you will be fine uh, if you want to reapply again. But, you know, if you do one of those options, you really need to give 110% at whatever you're doing. Uh, they are going to be um, kind of do or die moments for you. Maybe not on the gap year, but, you know, the SMP or the DIY post back. If you retake organic chemistry four years later, you probably should be aiming for an A, maybe an A minus. But if you get anything lower than an A minus and you just change your C plus to a B plus, I would say that's not worth it. And you haven't really done much to change your application. So regardless, at the end of all of that, if you do the S&P DIY post back and you reapply to medical school and you still don't get in, it's still not the end of the road. Some of my classmates in my cohort in the ACLP had reapplied to medical school three times. So that's three rejections plus another fourth year of reapplying under a special master's program where they're risking it all. So it's, it's, it's not a one and done thing. Don't let it get you down. And even if you're taking gap years on top of that, as long as you're doing meaningful things and adding to your application, primarily you want to be working towards your GPA. But as long as you're adding towards your application in other meaningful ways and adding to your rich life experience, um, that's pretty good. Uh, anyway, yeah, so throughout this whole presentation, I would say it wasn't really much of a talk, but you know, undergrad, navigating the pre-med lifestyle, applying by your senior year, thinking about the consequences of not getting in anywhere by the spring of your senior year, reevaluating your application and thinking about different post-graduation opportunities. Um, I think we've basically covered everything that I wanted to talk sure. about in the medical school journey. Definitely. Um, yeah, it was great. Obviously, um, you know, we, we went through a lot of information from beginning to end. So I very much appreciate, you know, the time that you took and your honesty and thoroughness when describing the process, because as you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, you know, it, it may be hard for some new students in undergrad to really um, narrow down and pick and choose what resources are out there. Because as you said, there are so many, you know, videos, podcasts, conversations, and so many references references at the university level and resources um, to that extent. So I think this definitely served as an excellent uh, proxy to being a pre-medical student, um, currently an undergrad in the US, um, alternative options. I think as you mentioned, you know, time after time, everyone does have a different process to their end goal. So it's not like medical school is one straight road up. Um, and I, I noticed that, you know, there are so many different ways that everyone can accomplish one overarching goal as long as they are, you know, committed and determined to achieve that. All right. I think that's for me. Uh, you have any other questions that you maybe want to ask for the people that might be listening to this? Um, none, none for me, but if anyone is listening and has any questions, feel free to reach out to Sigro Sessions on across all, uh, you know, podcast streaming platforms or social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and we'll be happy to circle back um, your questions to Austin and we can hopefully provide some answers for you guys. So once again, Austin, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it and hope you have a good rest of your night and stay safe. All right. Thanks for having me.